Now let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, please. Philippians 1. And we're going to continue our series, Live Like Jesus. This is um, an exciting passage to study with what Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and the believers, the Christians there. You know, if somebody asks you what your favorite book of the Bible is, um, some of you, you have one right away. You think, favorite book of the Bible, boom, here it is. But if you're like me, when somebody asks me my favorite book of the Bible, it's like asking me what my favorite ice cream flavor is. You know, it's like whatever day, it's sometimes it's cookies and cream, sometimes it's cookie dough, sometimes it's Reese's peanut butter cup, sometimes I'll take even just plain chocolate or something with brownie chunks in it, okay? So you know where I'm going with this? It just kind of depends the mood, the day. I have a lot of different fav- favorite ice cream flavors. When you think about my favorite book of the Bible, it just kind of depends. Right now, we're going through the book of Galatians on Wednesday night, verse by verse, and it's, it's becoming one of my favorites. Um, really, anything that Paul writes is a, is a good one. I love the Gospel of John. Anybody there? Gospel of John, one of your favorites. Um, Third John, love about this application of the hospitality within the local church, the body of believers. I love that message in Third John. And then um, Book of Psalm, everybody loves a a good psalm here or there. Uh, Maybe some of you read the psalm or a proverb every day. And, uh, And so Philippians is one of those. It just depends on the time. Now, I'm preaching from Philippians, so today it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it just kind of makes sense. If you gave me a bowl of crispy, uh, or of um, cookies and cream, that would be my favorite today. So here we're going to see Paul writing something that is going to be what Christ showed in the life that he lived, and Paul is going to be expressing this to the church at Philippi. Would you join me in verse number three? Follow along as I read Philippians chapter one. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. Good Southern guy here for you all, making requests with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. This morning, we're going to look at these verses together, and we're going to look at intentional fellowship. We've been studying through the life of Christ, the example that he gave us, and the life that we can live like Jesus. We looked at four messages and looking at this relational aspect. And then a few weeks ago, we transitioned into the intentional aspect of the life of Christ. And so this morning, as we study what Paul wrote, I believe he was looking at the life of Christ, remembering the intentional fellowship that Jesus lived. You think about the 12 disciples that he had, and then the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, people that he would pour time into. It was a very crucial part of his ministry was that intentional fellowship. We know there were times where Jesus would get away from the hustle and bustle of the crowd. He'd get alone just to talk to his heavenly father and pray on the behalf of the disciples, on the behalf of other believers, and Jesus would have intentional connection intentional fellowship. So this morning, we're going to study together here in Philippians chapter 3. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask for you to calm our hearts and to free us from the distractions that weigh us down and take our mind off of the 
the very holy and precious time that you've given to us, set aside for the reading and receiving of your word. And so this morning, as we go through this text and this passage of Scripture, may it be used to to, uh, bring our attention to something in our personal lives, something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be confessed, something that needs to be better, something that we need to commit. So whatever that might be today, Lord, we give this time to you. We'll be sure to give you praise and glory for what is accomplished through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We may ask ourselves this question, is friendship important to you? For some people, really, they can't live a day without connecting with their friends. For some people, they say, friendship is so important to me. It's a very crucial element. And and really, when we think about these thoughts of friendships, there's really no place on planet Earth that should have friendships that are growing, abounding, flourishing, budding, and and, and reproducing themselves. There's no place on planet Earth that should have those type of friendships more than the the church of God. It it should be the place where these friendships are had, and, and it goes beyond the walls of the structure of this building to where these friendships are long lasting connections. The example that Christ had set for his disciples and the inner circle, as we mentioned, was what Paul was going to pass on to this New Testament church as he would plant them and he would pour into them and he would help them to see their growth. Now, f- friendship is important, and it's an important part that, that leads to a vital function of the church, and that's that word fellowship that we've used a lot this fellowship and nurturing of relationships that are built on a common foundation, a core that is found in Jesus Christ. So we have a lot of relationships. We have our coworkers, we have our neighbors, we have our friends, we have our family. We have people that we interact on a regular basis. We have these, these connections or these relationships with them. But the fellowship takes it to the next level. This fellowship is the development and the nurturing of these friendships or relationships that is founded on the core, the foundation that Jesus Christ is the center of that relationship. And so the, the conversation that I have with, um, with Caitlin, our barista, and I invite her every time I go through the drive-thru and make sure that she's got an invite and, and uh, hey, don't forget, come visit us at church. And I've been inviting her to Easter's for the last three years, and I've been inviting her to special services. And then a couple of weeks ago, she said, hey, I went to church on Sunday. I was like, you did? I didn't see you. She said, yeah, I went to such and such church. I was like, ah, no. Okay, good. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, um, you know, if it had been a gospel preaching church, then I probably wouldn't have strangled her like I did. But anyway, so when we think about that, that is not a fellowship. I have no fellowship. I have this connection of communication, but I have no fellowship because there's not a common core of our foundation in our relationship being, being these relationships or this fellowship and that we're intentional about it. So what is this this true fellowship look like that God really in our life uses as a tool to help us to be more godly. Do you realize that? That the fellowship within God's church, the fellowship that we have with one another is one of many tools that God uses to help us in our spiritual journey. We've talked about this before. Isolation, it has no part in the Christian journey. Isolation has no part in the Christian's life. We're not to be a man on his own island and stiff-arming everybody around him that's trying to get close to him or build this fellowship based on the secure foundation of, of Jesus Christ. And so what does that look like? How does God use this fellowship as a tool in our life? What does it look like? Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul addresses this issue of prayer. And I see here this, this thought of praying for each other. 
even while Paul was in the middle of his own problems. Remember, Paul is, is, is chained up, he's shackled, he's in prison. And in the middle of his own world uh, or life problems, he is still reminding the church at Philippi, the fellowship of believers, he's reminding them that he is praying for them. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. This was a circumstantial thinking on Paul's part. This would have been something that Paul probably was not working off of a prayer journal or a prayer list that said, pray for the Smiths and the Joneses and the, and, and the, and the so-and-sos, and let's pray for them today. Paul would have been using the moments of circumstances that would have been bringing people to his attention, people that he would have been very close to, this fellowship of believers. You know, in our own life, too, it's so often we feel guilty that if we didn't pray for the Joneses and the Smiths because we didn't go through our list, but sometimes we just need to be still long enough and allow circumstantial thinking to happen in our life where God brings moments to us that says, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. You know what? I, God brought them to my mind. Let me just pause, pray for them, and, um, and just bring them before the Lord. There's some reason why God brought them to my mind. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying there's often times in my thinking that you come to my heart and my mind and I pray for you. That's a close relationship. That's a close fellowship. Think about this. What are some of the things that would bring people to your mind? Um, maybe certain places that you drive by. If you drive by a place, you remember a coffee appointment or a lunch appointment or something that you had with that individual or you see a commercial come across the TV or, or maybe a song play on the radio. Or uh, By the way, every time I hear 10,000 reasons play on the radio, you know who I think of? Cheryl Mayer. Because Dave Mayer sat here on the second row and he loved that song. We sang it at his funeral. And now every time I hear 10,000 Reasons, I pray for Miss Cheryl Mayer and her journey now in life and, and God's encouragement. And so those are a lot of different ways that God just brings people to our mind. Um, things that, that, that God will allow us to experience or to see or a smell, a sound, a shared memory. Allow, allow the Holy Spirit to stir your heart, to stir your mind, and then pray for them. And you know what? It's not bad to maybe even just let them know, not pharisaically, well, I prayed for you today. No, but just sending them a quick message. Hey, for some reason, God brought you to my mind, and I don't know what's going on in your life, but I just want you to know I prayed for you today. Hey, is there anything more specifically I can pray for you? Have you ever done that and somebody was like, whoa, you, you mean just now you prayed? Like, yeah. Like, oh, if you only knew what was going on in my life right now, that was a godsend. So you see how God uses us in this fellowship, this intentional way of partnering together to pray for each other. If you're having trouble with another believer, pray often for that person. Yeah, if you're having trouble... If somebody rubs you the wrong way or somebody causes grief in your life, pray for them often. It's hard to stay angry at someone that you're praying for daily. Um, James Boyce stated this way. He said, I think that 90% of all the divisions between true believers in this world would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another. You know, too often our prayers are consumed with our own needs and our own list of things. I mean, some of us, let's just be honest, we got enough aches and pains and problems and doctor's appointments that could fill a 30-minute prayer each and every day. And all of a sudden, our prayers have all become center-focused, and then we live life that way. 
And then we live life that it's all really about me. I know you've got your problems and you hold them to yourself and I'll hold mine. Well, actually, if you've got 10 minutes, I'll tell you mine too. And you can add those to your problems, right? And so often we've got to be careful that we don't, um, we don't add to this, but rather we, we pray specifically and constantly for one another. That's an intentional fellowship, partnership with each other. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see that Paul says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He says, even as it is meet for me, or even as it is proper for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds, he's in prison, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers, partners of my grace. And so secondly, we see serving God together. How do we have intentional fellowship, pray for one another, and then let's serve God together. And his thought moves on to express the reason for his thankfulness to God for the people at Philippi. He says, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This word fellowship is the, is the same Greek word that we're going to find in Galatians chapter 2. We studied it this past Wednesday night in our study. And that word fellowship is the word for partnership. But it is, a, it is a solid, purposeful agreement of partnership. You see, in Galatians chapter 2... How it was brought up was that Paul and Barnabas and Titus had traveled up to Jerusalem. It was the Jerusalem Council, the Greeks and the, and the, or the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, the Judaizers were at conflict over what it was in stake for true salvation. And so Paul comes up to meet with the apostles. It's Peter, James, and John. It's the all-star team there in the early church in Jerusalem. And Paul comes up to have conversation with them. And at the end of the conversation, there was an agreement made. And that's where we get the phrase, extended the right hand of fellowship. And that word fellowship is not just the, what we did when we walked in. I, I shook a lot of hands this morning as I came in. And uh, we'll probably do the same at the end. And there's this, hey, how's it going? Hey, good, good to see you. Hey, I hope things are going well. And our society is this handshake being offered. Now, what this word, right hand of fellowship, goes much deeper, it is a true, genuine, purposeful partnership that nothing will get in between. So what Paul is saying to the Christians at Philippi is he says that this is not just some fellowship potluck dinner where we can all smile at each other. Oh, I liked your baked beans. Yeah, and I liked your cream casserole, whatever. Um, boy, that sounds good. Ice cream, baked beans, cream casserole. It's, this is good. We're getting a menu together here. So I don't even know what cream casserole is. I, I think I left out a word or two there. But flow with me, okay? So... What they're saying here is that this partnership is crucial to the movement or the functioning, or as he said here, this confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. So it is this fellowship and partnership in the gospel. It is this partnership that says, hey, we don't really live Monday and Friday like each other all the time, but we find this common unity and partnership in the gospel. We find this common unity, this common fellowship, this partnership, this intentional uh, fellowship together that we're going to serve God together. Now, we know that we've talked about in our, in our city and in our culture around us, we have to be careful. There's a lot of false gospel that is permeating all throughout Lakeland. And so it's not gospel, that's what separates us from other followings, other religions, or other minds of other ways of believing. 
So we partner, though, with our church body, as well as those of like faith, to accomplish something greater than ourselves, and that is the message, the power of the gospel. And that's what Paul is reminding them is this serving together. And this serving together means in verse 6 that we have to trust in God's sovereign work. You know, we ask the question, how many of you have ever lacked confidence in your Christian journey? Anybody ever lacked confidence in the Christian life? I think we've all been there. Do you realize that God never punishes you for asking why? He never punishes us for asking why, God. I think it comes to the the harsh reality when we begin to get off track by stop trusting God. And Paul reminds them, as he's in chains and shackles, it was not, why God? Hey, I have a lot I could be doing. Instead of writing this letter and sending it, I could be there. I could have boots on the ground. We could be accomplishing a lot more for the gospel. So why God? Why now? Why this? That was, Paul, that was never Paul's message, never his attitude. He was reminding them of trusting in God's sovereign work. It was something so much greater than themselves. And by the way, when you believe in a sovereign God, you believe in a big God. When you say God's not sovereign in control, you've tried to put God in your own little box. And you want to define your God and give parameters. And you want to rub the bottle and let God come alive when you need him. And you want God to give you the answers when you want them. And then you want God to be the big teddy bear that's going to give you great comfort and relief in the trials of life. And if that's your little God you want to serve, you're going to miss the mark Because Paul reminds the church at Philippi, he reminds all of us that in our pursuit to serve God together, we must trust in the sovereign work of God. And he has not forgotten us. He's not. The things of life go up and down. I love the mountaintops. I love the peaks. And I dread the valleys. But the reality is, is that's real life. And we can't pretend to be differently we can't try to cause somebody to say, well, you're just not believing hard enough. You're not believing enough in God. You're not praying hard enough. That cancer should have been long gone by now. You should have been cured by this. You should have some joy in your life. You should be happy again. God wants you happy. That's a false statement. It's not happiness. He wants peace and the true joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And unfortunately, in our carnal ways of living, we try to find our peace and joy in outside elements apart from the sovereign God that we serve. And so he says, if we're going to serve God together, we've got to trust in his sovereignty and then also experience God's grace. In verse number seven, this experiencing or this partnership or this partakers of my grace, this grace that was received by God, tells me that we need to be willing to tell our story. Tell your story to somebody. Tell your story of of God in the grace that you experience. Tell your story of his forgiveness. Tell your story of his faithfulness. We partner together of God's grace, and that's what unifies us. Oh, we'll sing, and we'll shout, and we'll praise, and we'll testify. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace all day long. And we feel very comfortable in this partnership together to celebrate God's grace. But that's a message that we must tell beyond the four walls of this structured building right here. Church, do you believe that the church goes away? Do you believe that this is the church body that functions in a community? And if that's the case, then we proclaim the power of the gospel. 
And we tell the gospel that changed our life, and it can change their life too. Last week when we studied this this intentional conversation that Jesus had, not only with Nicodemus, John 3, but also the woman, down barriers, building relationships, and planting gospel seeds. And when we see Jesus at work in 3 and 4 of John, we see, yeah, he broke down barriers. The religious man, Nicodemus, knocked on the door. He said, come on in. Conversation was had. He broke down barriers. He built a connection of relationship. He planted gospel seeds. Chapter later, chapter number 4, which we studied last week, a woman at the well. He had to be real with her. He had to be honest with her. And he was telling her about the everlasting water, the everlasting life that she could have. She couldn't grab a hold of that. She couldn't understand that until Jesus, after breaking down barriers, saying, yeah, I understand you're Samaritan. I understand that I'm a Jew. But listen, let's just have conversation here. He didn't get bogged down with the details, even though she believed that her father and the line came from Jacob down to Joseph, down to Manasseh and Ephraim. And and she stated that very clearly in the conversation with Jesus. He didn't get bogged down with the wrong details. He just simply got to that which was important. So he broke down the barriers. He built a relationship. He planted gospel seed. That gospel seed took root. And we see a woman at the well whose life was changed and transformed for all eternity. And she took and told her story. And she left that moment with Jesus and she went back into the village. And when she went down there, she told everybody she could. And then the power of God took place in those lives. So don't you want your story to impact other people's lives? Don't you want God's grace to flow through you? Don't you want to be a channel of God's love? Don't you want people to see something different in you? That happens because you've experienced God's grace Now, understand, no one has the upper hand on God's grace. Aren't you thankful for that? I feel like I'm grace. Nor do we have the inside scoop that someone else doesn't have. We were at an American Girl event last night, or yesterday, Bailey in Brooklyn, and um, I was pretty excited about the event too, okay? So let's just be honest. And uh, so we go to Orlando, we go to the event, and uh, they do this play, this musical, this program, and, and, uh, you know, there's probably several hundred people there, and I'm looking around, and there were five dads. I was like, yeah, here we are. This is good. And, and, uh, and so then at the end of the program, everybody's getting up to leave. Two hours, it's over. It was fun. Oh, we clapped. We laughed. We, it was a good time, and we're getting ready to leave, and over the system comes, ladies and gentlemen, if you have the VIP tickets for backstage meet and greet, please stay in your seats, and someone will come and get you just as soon as possible. I thought, meet and greet? What's up with that? Like, I didn't buy tickets for a meet and greet. I said, let's all sit down. We're going to trick them, all right? No, we didn't do that, all right? I'm trying to teach the girls right, all right? So as we're walking out, you know, I'm thinking, I'm disappointed. The girls didn't think any differently. And, and I'm like, man, we didn't have the inside scoop for the meet and greet with the American girls. I was really bummed out about that. You know what? I'm so thankful that God's grace doesn't work like that. It's not that we have the inside scoop. It's not that we've got the ring on the ladder. It's not that we've invested enough to receive God's grace. That grace comes with no part of who we are. Now, to make up for it, tomorrow I'm thankful that I've got a connection with one of our vendors, and uh, he's not taking me to the American Girl concert, but he is going to take me to the baseball game, and we're going to sit in one of the executive booths with all-you-can-eat food and air conditioning and padded seats and watch the game. And you know what I'm going to do? Just like I did last year with my big hot dog in hand and Coke, I'm going to look over the railing and see everybody else sitting in the hot sun sweating in an uncomfortable seat. I'm going to say, go Tigers! <laughs> and I'll drink my drink, you know? No, I really won't. I really won't. Okay. I probably won't even watch the game, but it'll be a fun experience. You know what happens 
is so many things in our life, we're used to getting either the upper hand or the inside scoop. And then what happens in our Christian journey is we think, I've been saved for 45 years. I've been down that road. Just park it, sit down, let me share. And we want to think that we've got the inside scoop or the upper hand on God's grace in our life. And we look at other people as stragglers or just really having issues with their Christian liberty. And we want to keep them at arm's length, stiff arm them and say, I can't really let them ooze out on me because I'm in the upper rankings of God's grace. Paul says that we are all experiencing God's grace. And we need to proclaim that and tell about that. And then verse number eight, look at this extension of genuine compassion to each other. Because he says, for God is my record, God is my witness, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now that word bowels, I've, I've had a hard time with in the old English for years. Anytime I see the word bowels, I think of small intestines, large intestines, colon, all right? So that's, and I know that's not what it's referring to. So I like to go back to the original language, the Greek word here, affection, compassion. And so when I read that, I see that this compassion or this affection of Jesus Christ, I think of this in such a way that it emphasizes the emotional aspect of Paul's love for these other believers that were so dear to him. You see, he extended genuine compassion to them. It emphasizes this, this part that sin, we cannot allow sin to divide us in, in certain ethnicities or races or wealth or history or background or journeys. Sin will divide God's church that way. I remember my 11 years in Macon about being a multi ethnic many so-called Christians that were not at all concerned or passionate about being a multi-ethnic church. That broke my heart. Um, when I'm in a community like Lakeland, I do research and I find out that right now where we are as a community, five mile radius from our church property, 32% of our population is either Latino or African American or Asian. So what that tells me is that we have a community that Parkway can be a part of reaching Another key area of our core values, by the way, you're getting like four core values already this morning when we haven't even really unveiled them yet, but I, I want to tell you one, diversity. At Parkway, we desire to represent the diversity of our own community. There would be something wrong if this church body did not look like our community. There really would be. Um, and so we have to be compassionate about that, and we have to be purposeful about that. We have to look to see what we can do to continue to reach all people. And the love of Jesus Christ is what unites us, not just intellectually, but it, it, it unites us with this heartfelt love. And this is a crucial part of extending genuine compassion to one another. And then last, we see in verses 9 through 11, that Paul reminds us in this intentional fellowship to exercise abundant love to each other. In verses 9 to 11, he addresses this, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. You know, let's ask, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's ask a hard question. How do I develop heartfelt love for a Christian whom I find it hard to be around? Are you willing to ask yourself that question? Some of you are like, I ask myself every Sunday, you know, and that's kind of part of my pep talk I give myself when I come to church, Right? So we say, how in the world do I develop this heartfelt love for Christians 
whom I find it hard to be around. And let's be honest, it's not always easy. In verse number 8, we found that this affection or this compassion, where is it coming from? It says, for God is my witness, how greatly I long after you all in the affections, compassions, where? Of Jesus Christ. A powerful metaphor that uh, J.B. Lightfoot, he says this, a powerful metaphor describing perfect union is found here in verse 8 and 9. He says, the believer has no yearnings apart from his Lord. His pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. His heart throbs with the heart of Christ. And so Jesus Christ loved the difficult brother or sister enough that he died on the cross for them. Have you ever thought about that? He died for your difficult husband. He have partnered with in this fellowship to be centered and unified on the foundation of Jesus Christ so that you can have a developing and nurturing relationship. And so Jesus Christ died for that difficult soul. And and they have come to a place of trusting in Jesus Christ. They may be at a different place in their Christian journey. They may be uh, struggling with some carnal, and we don't want to be around them. And by, by the way, truthfully, we do have to be discerning. God doesn't want us to just be around people that are just going to ooze negativity onto us all the time because eventually that negativity just compiles onto us and then flows out of us. So choose your friends wisely allow yourself to be around people who are going to strengthen you, sharpen you, and make you better. But here, we have to love the tough people. Now, this happens by knowledge and discernment, verse number 9. These two Christian qualities were necessary in a community where the tendency was to be disunified and to have fault-finding within the church. Now, remember, Paul's writing early churches of the New Testament era. And when he's writing these churches, he knows that they're carnal and they are real just like you and me are today. And so as he's writing them, he's having to address issues of of finding where the joy, the real source of joy is going to be and how to love each other and how to embrace this ministry together. And he says it's going to happen by knowledge. The more knowledge you have of God and his word, it's going to shape you to act differently and certainly helps us to exercise abundant love to others as well as the word discernment. So the more knowledge I have about who God is and who I am to him, and I can then become better discerners of being an abundant source of that love to other people. It goes all the way back to when we talked about praying for one another. If there's somebody in the church body that you just, it's like nails scraping on the chalkboard and you just, uh, chalkboards, they don't use those anymore. I guess it's, it's like the knife or the fork scraping against the glass dish. I think that's the same sound. It's It just bothers you to the very core. Maybe we just need to be praying for them more consistently and specifically. Now, don't let your prayers be, God, eliminate them from planet Earth. All right, That's not the specific prayer. There's other specific prayers that you could use. And then in verse number 10, it's this this abundant love is is motivated by sincerity. Um, Most of the time, our confrontations are motivated by fleshly reasons. Allow God to love them through you by being sincere without looking for something in return. Don't always look for justice, for promotion, for praise. Don't always look for revenge. Definitely be motivated by sincerity, verse number 10. And and then also the last part of verse 10, allow yourself to be free from causing a stumbling block. When he says here, without offense, this is to be blameless. 
And he says in, in this passage of being without offense, he's all pointing to the day until the day of Christ's return. And so he's wanting everything to be done in a godly fashion, a godly way. May we never be the blame for causing someone to sin because of the life that we lived or the attitude that we betrayed. Tim Keller said this, I shared it on Wednesday night in our Bible study in Galatians. If salvation depends upon obeying the rules, then you want your rules to be specific, doable, and clear. Now, moralistic religion tends to to press its members to adopt a, a very specific way of living. And if you were here Wednesday night, we talked about this with this, this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, but living a life that is, is, is a godly testimony because in the inward, God has changed us, and on the outward, we live that life. But what has happened with this mindset through the years is that all of a sudden, this moralistic religion causes us to put into place and to practice these rules and regulations that help us to be nitpicky on how people should dress, how they should behave, where they should go, and what they should do. Until all of a sudden, now we're in this, I look like this. But because I'm all about the rules and regulations and being nitpicky on how things need to be played out, they need to be specific, they need to be doable... And so if I can live in those doable functions as a Christian robot, then you better be doing that as well. Then all of a sudden we get into this comparison game. And what good does that do for your spiritual journey? You know what it does for me? It causes me to have problems with you. Because now you don't look like I do. You don't talk like I do. You don't go where I go. And you don't abstain the things that I abstain from. And I've got all of my reasons that I want to cram down your throat. And you need to live by that as well. And instead of preaching and teaching about the individual priesthood of believers that we all have that privilege of, by the way, as a Baptist, that's one of the main things that stands out. So the individual priesthood of believers says that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you, and he's going to tell you those things. Now, we're going to teach and preach biblical principles. We're going to tell you, hey, are you having trouble with your entertainment? Then then go to Philippians chapter 4, whatever things are true, honest, and and just, and pure, and and the list goes on. And and now we say, let's use these things. But I don't get my long list out and say, don't go here, don't do that, don't say that, and certainly don't you dress like that. And now all of a sudden, you're a good person like me. So you see, this exercising of abundant love to each other comes to grips with the fact that we're all just receiving God's grace little by little, living this life called the spiritual journey, trying to make wise decisions that would be pleasing to the Lord. Now, sometimes sin has to be confronted. And when sin happens within the church, in order to protect the purity of the church and the integrity of the gospel, in order to protect those things, In order to protect the partnership, the fellowship of the community of believers, sin has to be called sin, and it has to be addressed. We don't sink our head into the sand and hope that everything works out in the end. That's not what happens. So we look to see what God's word is very specific on, and that's what we stand on as truth. The other things we work out in this process of God's freedom that he gives us. So filled with the evidence of righteousness, verse number 11, because he says, live like Jesus unto the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer is that on the day when Christ returns, he might find them filled to the fullest with the fruit of their righteous lives. 
in order to be filled with the fullest of fruits of righteousness in your life until the day of Jesus Christ comes, to be giving glory and praise to God, it means that we must follow the advice that Paul gave to the church at Philippi for this intentional fellowship. I close with this story. John Fawcett, he understood and experienced biblical fellowship in a deep way. He's an old guy. He was born in 1739 in England. And at the age of 16, he was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield, perhaps one of the greatest traveling preachers of the uh, modern history. So John Fawcett, age of 26, took on Fawcett and his new bride, Mary. They began their ministry at an impoverished Baptist church in Waynesgate. So though the people were poor and they lacked any resources to adequately support him, they compensated for their lack of resources and finances with their faithfulness and their warm fellowship. After seven years of faithful service in a very meager circumstance, his reputation as a very powerful preacher, gifted by God, and a writer and scholar, this word began to spread even to the attention of King George III, who appreciated his writings. So Pastor John received a call to the large and influential Carter's Lane Baptist Church in London. So after a lengthy and difficult decision process, they decided to accept the call. So the wagons pulled up, and they were loading up all of their possessions, very few possessions. But as they loaded them up, the people came for a final farewell. The tears were flowing, as you can imagine, the sadness. And many expressed their love to their pastor, and they pleaded with him to reconsider. Touched by their great outpouring of love, he and his wife Mary, they began to cry. Finally, Mrs. Fawcett, she said, she said, oh, John, I just can't bear this. They need us so badly here. Then John responded, God has spoken to my heart too of fellowship. This experience inspired Fawcett to write an old hymn. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred mind is like to that above. John and Mary Fawcett carried on their faithful ministry in the little village of Waynesgate with a very poor and impoverished congregation for a total of 54 years. <laughs> the church was humble and tiny, but the fellowship was blessed. It's reported that the king promised Pastor John any benefit that could be awarded to him, but the offer was declined with this statement, Sir, I have lived among my own people, enjoying their love, God has blessed my labors among them, and I need nothing which even a king could supply. Wow. It's a wonderful story behind the wonderful words. Blessed be the tie that binds our heart in Christian love. The fellowship, the partnership, the connection, the unity, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Church, <clears throat> let's be careful not to fall into a pattern of taking Christian fellowship for granted. I understand we're in a culture today where there's a lot of other attachments to our life. And Little League wants to take your energy, your focus, and your time. And all of these other societies and groups, all of these programs and other even extended ministries that are parachurch, they all need your money, your attention, and your energy. But the reality is that Jesus Christ died for the church. 
the tie that binds the heart and Christian love, the fellowship that we have that should be developing and nurturing, founded on the very core foundation of what? Jesus Christ. Are you a part of intentional fellowship? If you're pursuing to be more like Jesus Christ, then you will. You will look to be intentional about your partnership.